Hello and welcome to our sixth Beyond Brexit podcast. Since our last episode in March, a lot has happened. An unexpected general election with an even more unexpected result. And the start of the negotiations from the UK to exit the European Union. I'm joined today by three of our experts to help us consider the political landscape, some international perspectives and the free movement of Labour. On our panel, we've got Neil Sherlock, our Head of Reputational Strategy, who has held a number of governmental advisory roles, including being Special Advisor to Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, where he covered business issues and political reform. Julia Onslow-Cole, Head of Global Immigration and Legal Markets Leader, who has been advising various governments on European immigration and the refugee crisis. She also sits on the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's Brexit Expert Advisory Group. And thirdly, Ray Taylor is from our Public Policy and Reputational Affairs team and is based in Brussels. So Neil, shall I start with you? So perhaps you could just give us an update on the political landscape post the general election. Has anything changed? Well, as you rightly said, it was an unexpected general election because we had a fixed term parliament and the Prime Minister called a vote which led to the election. The assumption was from people in every party, all the pundits, all the pollsters, that there'll be a big Conservative win. And then when we saw the exit poll from John Curtis, we knew what was happening. That in fact, the Conservatives had lost seats, Labour had gained seats, and therefore we had a minority government. And within that situation, in a way, it's a bit sort of back to the future, the future being 1976, 77, 78, when government kept going by doing deals with other parties in order to ensure it could win votes in the House of Commons. And in that sense, the government, uh, after a, quite a long period of time, ultimately did a deal with the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland. So I think where we are now is that the government is in a position where there's lots of voices that are, in a way, replaying some of the arguments around government before the government triggered Article 50, seeing quite a lot of business voices, seeing quite a lot of former prime ministers, seeing quite a lot of senior cabinet people um, reopening the arguments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the government is in a weaker position in the sense of uh, uh, being able to stop that happening. But at this point, although there's some clearly different tone from people and people saying things privately that are somewhat different and some public speeches, that the overall policy at this point hasn't really shifted. And that's probably uh, something that people should just hold on to yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there is a sense that given it's a minority government, then surely Parliament is going to play a bigger part. And surely that will sort of temper down or maybe more of an extreme position. I hesitate to use the word hard Brexit versus than soft. Do you think, do you not sense that that's any, there's been any move in that direction? Well, Parliament, yes, will play an important role. For example, we saw just on another issue that Stella Creasy, a Labour-backed bencher, got the government to change policy on people in Northern Ireland coming to England to have abortions. The government um, agreed that could happen mm -hmm. and found yeah. some money. So, yes, MPs matter. Uh, I think the business just has to be a tad careful for this reason. People will be listening to the voices that argued overwhelmingly for Remain in the referendum uh, and argued that around the government of Theresa May, but didn't really win the argument. 
Uh, and yes, those voices will continue to make those sorts of points around transition and other things, which I think are being listened to more. But just remember, there are still, particularly on the, on the Conservative side, behind the Prime Minister on the benches, a serious number of people who um, are very, very committed to the policy the government set out, very committed to leaving uh, in March 2019, and won't want to see very much change. So the Prime Minister, in a weak position, will be having to balance those that opinion uh, and other opinions around change. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. there'll be some nuance. Yeah. There, there is an opportunity because the door is open for business to make some case, and that's clearly happening. But people should just be a tad cautious about overplaying it, and particularly, I think, those voices who say, well, do you know what? It may not happen. I just think that is being overplayed too much as well. Yes, I, I agree. So I think I think the message from business is, I think there has been a change of tone in that business is being listened to. So there is a, a an invitation, in fact, almost a responsibility to engage in that debate. But also, probably it's got a bit late for wait and see. It's, it, it's coming and perhaps yeah. we should all be now starting to do, to do proper contingency planning. Yes, and it's yeah. well worth remembering. And Michel Barnier says this every time he has a speech and Ray will no doubt... Um, uh, make some comments on that, but we are four months, four months into the negotiation yeah, yeah. period. But there is a fixed period of 24 months, and already four of those have gone, yeah. of which there has been one substantive meeting and no doubt now a number of side meetings. But uh, there is a need to recognise the end point and the moment to influence is, is day by day in order to ensure that both the British government here business voices and others, and indeed that one makes those points to the 27 and the Barnier team as yeah. well. Both sides is still important and yeah. we mustn't ever lose sight of that. Absolutely. So we'll come back to that when, when we come and have a conversation with Ray. But since you touched on a Northern Ireland issue, um, we felt it was important to get not just a kind of London or, or you, England perspective. And Paul Terrington, who's our regional leader for Northern Ireland, wasn't available to join us live today. But earlier this week, I asked him... A year on from the announcement of the UK's exit from the EU, how are businesses and sectors in Northern Ireland responding? And here's what he had to say. A year ago at the uh, announcement of the Brexit referendum outcome, I think it's fair to say that business in Northern Ireland was shocked um, and that shock coloured and categorised um, how we reacted. Uh, there was a lot of despondency at the uncertainty and the prospects uh, that lay ahead. Um, particularly the issue of the land border in Ireland was one that, uh, that vexed uh, Northern Ireland companies with the Republic of Ireland as our uh, number one destination for exports. Um, beyond actually the kind of trading issue, the, uh, the issue of the border felt like it had been settled some time ago. It's, uh, it's virtually non-existent as a physical entity. So, um, so uh, the issues of identity associated with it felt like they were issues of the past and people are concerned if those things are resurrected. Um, at the same time, uh, as time has gone on, um, I think we've seen local agri-food and tourism sector get a bit of a boost on the uh, exchange rate issues. Uh, we've seen uh, at the same time investment in hotels and A-grade office accommodation uh, in Northern Ireland and the continued success of Invest Northern Ireland in attracting foreign direct investment uh, to this part of the world. Um, we also uh, have continued to see the growth of Belfast as a key financial services centre. So 
when you look across those things, I think that the resilience that business in Northern Ireland has had to exhibit over many years of, uh, of adversity uh, is coming to the fore, uh, albeit I think people still see that there's uh, quite some distance to travel. Well, that was really good to hear about the resilience of Northern Ireland businesses. And Julia, uh, um, Paul mentioned a border, and it's just really good to bring you back in at this point. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Neil, in fact. was, Do you detect any change in the government's policy on immigration? Um, yes, I mean, I really echo everything that Neil said, and I think that there is some sort of chink in the of light in terms of um, you know, some softer immigration policy, particularly around the net migration target and taking students out of the net migration target. Um, I think we hopefully will have a white paper before parliamentary recess, which is only in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but I don't expect to see much in there by way of policy at this stage. And I think that the government will try and sort of coalesce around a House of Commons view on future immigration policy because of all the differences of opinion that Neil has alluded to. Mm -hmm. So the, the government's made an announcement about EU citizens. What's yes. your take on that? Is that the final offer or is, is we going to see more movement from that? Well, we've made an offer, the government's made an offer for EU citizens and um, the, the offer, I think it might be helpful if I just clarify yes, what the offer is. So basically, uh, there will be a date, and that date hasn't been set. So it could be the date that we trigger um, Article 50, or it could be the date that we exit. And um, before that date, if you've been exercising treaty rights for five years, then um, under EU law, you'd have permanent residence, and then you would have a path to settled status. And for people who are here exercising treaty rights before that cutoff date, you could continue to exercise them until you get a settled status. For people coming in from the EU after the cutoff date, we're not sure what the policy um, will be at the current time. But there are some sort of sticky points. And still a little mm. bit of unclarity still. Yes. Yeah. yes. And what was the reaction from the EU? It didn't sound like we were going far enough from an yes. EU perspective. Well, it's very interesting, Gaynor, because I um, gave evidence as, a, as an expert in the European Parliament um, on this whole point, and Guy uh, Verhofstadt, the chief Brexit negotiator for the European Parliament, was there. And the one point that, that was very, very clear was that um, from the EU 27's perspective, they really want the European Court of Justice to be the final court of arbitrating um, on EU citizens' rights. And I think the difference is that we in the and the government see it very much as a immigration issue, whereas they see it very much as a citizens' rights issue. Mm. So I think this is this is the major sticky point. Yeah, it's almost like it's even more important than free movement of people. It's the ECJ point of view yes. of that as well. And that's very interesting. But you did say you were a bit more optimistic. So what, what are you seeing businesses doing at the moment, say, with their people? Are you detecting any change of approach? Well, um, as you said earlier on, I think business now feel that now's the time that they have to make preparations. And we're certainly seeing a continuation of impact studies, um, you know, looking at the impact of future immigration policies on their business. We're also seeing businesses continue to support EU citizens to register their, um, their rights, their treaty rights. And I think this is increasingly important for EU citizens' children because they can have uh, rights to British citizenship because 
you know, because their parents are registering um, EU rights of permanent residence. So we're seeing that continue. And then we're seeing lots of very helpful suggestions from different sectors about what they would like to see um, in the long term, and not just on immigration, but also with an eye to the industrial strategy, mm -hmm. throwing in um, training and experience. Okay, that's a very good point, isn't it? So I think what you're still seeing is a lot of focus on supporting EU citizens who are here, on yes. vice versa, um, and their families, and yes. getting clarity, even if, if, if the government isn't able to give us clarity, trying to give those individuals clarity on their personal positions. Yeah. And are you seeing, it's interesting you're seeing the focus on skills, are you already seeing businesses cut back on recruiting from EU or just finding it too hard to recruit from yes. the EU already? I mean, I think it's certainly right to say that business has found it harder to, to source EU citizens. I think, you know, with the exchange rate mm -hmm. and also, you know, with the noise around EU citizens in the future and an uncertainty, uh, definitely, you know, businesses are experiencing uh, difficulty in, in recruiting EU citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's probably understandable. So, Ray, I want to bring you in. You came from Brussels this morning, so you kind of have a sense. Um, again, a similar question to, I, to the one I asked Neil, which is, what's your sense on the ground of what is the reaction um, in Brussels to the, the UK's position, what they've said so far? Well, I think, like a lot of people in the UK, um, I think the fact that Theresa May called an election came as a shock and a surprise, um, uh, in part because what certainly the European Commissioner and people that are close to this process understood was it is a very narrow time frame um, that we have to negotiate. Um, uh, Neil quite rightly identified it's a, it's a two-year process, but the, the, the sort of the reality from the EU side is that it's actually much shorter than that because, um, and uh, Michel Barnier, the Commission Chief, uh, Brexit negotiators already alluded to this point, he feels that he needs to be able to present a deal to the 27 member states in the European Parliament by the, the back of 2018, because he knows that it will necessitate a ratification process, but he will also be aware that there will be European elections in May 2019. The effect of that will be that most European parliamentarians will be out of Brussels uh, very quickly after um, uh, the, the, the sort of January 2019. So there's actually a very narrow period of time uh, to, to resolve this. So there was that sort of slight su surprise that the UK elected to take a, a chunk of time out of the process mm -hmm. of what was already a, a, sh a very sort of testing time. Um, I think the other thing that's becoming quite clear is actually the Commission have become quite concerned about the position the UK government now finds itself in. As we know in any negotiation, how you can actually achieve an answer is if both sides are able to conclude an agreement. The Commission knows exactly what it wants um, and has actually had over nearly a year now to prepare the ground on a lot of very detailed areas and that's obviously exhibited by the fact that they're producing ma a massive amount of material with respect to what their positions are. They are having very regular dialogue with uh, the 27 member states and the European Parliament. The UK government now is in, a, is, is in a weaker position, and the Commission knows that, and that isn't actually helpful to the Commission. You know, it would much rather have somebody who can give you a yes or no answer, mm -hmm. rather than a, I don't know, I've got to go back and check answer. Yeah. And, and for that reason, I don't think, that I get the sense that the Commission is in not a particularly happy place at the moment with respect to where the UK is. I think the other thing, and it sort of goes to um, the business point as well. Um, 
it's, I think it's become clear that outside of the sort of the high level areas, and obviously Julia touched on immigration, um, that the UK government does not yet have any really settled views, whereas the Commission and the Member States do. But that allows an opportunity for UK business to sort of raise issues that will allow the policy formation phase for those sort of secondary issues to be taken into account by the UK government. And that's why there most probably is a window of opportunity, both here but also elsewhere, to raise these issues. Um, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I mean, Neil sort of alluded this. There was one meeting um, uh, about three weeks ago in Brussels. The next uh, round of meetings is scheduled the week commencing the 17th of July in Brussels. Um, I think what we need to remember is, however, this is still a highly politicised process. Mm -hmm. And that was actually demonstrated by a speech that Michel Barnier gave yesterday, uh, where basically he basically reiterated what I think anybody in Brussels would view as the obvious with respect to what the UK can reasonably expect to get out of any ultimate deal, particularly around trade, uh, when uh, if the UK's stated uh, position of not being a member of the single market and not being part of the customs union uh, is the end game, that we cannot by implication expect there to be frictionless trade following on from that. Um, and, uh, and also he made the very political point of the UK will be a third country. So I mean it's, very, it's still a highly politicised process. As the process moves on, one would hope that the politics will come out of the process and more rational nego negotiation can actually take place. And I think we'll most probably start to see that certainly by the end of this year. Going back to my other point, because if not, then we have a real problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I think you said a lot there, but I think, I think what I heard from there was um, that actually there's, there's quite good consensus coming out of the EU. We're getting a clear position of what their position is. Um, you're going to get more heat and light. You're going to get the public position may belie some progress that's being made behind the scenes. And this is the window of opportunity where that progress might be made. Absolutely. And you know, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes I think it's an area that, you know, a lot of people in the UK sort of don't understand about Europe is that actually in Europe, people are passionate about the European model. Um, and, and, you know, a, a demonstration of that is that... Um, um, certainly, uh, I, I've become aware that you know, German business has been engaging with the German government, but the German government has, in effect, said to them at this moment in time, um, we are not going to be doing any deals with the UK that undermines the European idea of single market, free movements, and all those sort of things. And, and I think sometimes we, we sort of, in this country, I think sometimes we misunderstand that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th there, is a, there is a passionate belief across a lot of Europe that the European model works. It could be tweaked with and it could be made better, but actually at a fundamental level, um, it works and it works to the benefit uh, of, of, of Europeans. Uh, and therefore, going in and saying, we want this, but we're not gonna have that, if it breaks that model, is unacceptable to a lot of people in Europe, Commission and a lot of member states. And that's why at this moment in time, you see this very common view that is coming out unanimity yeah. at the moment. Now, okay, fine, that's because we're sitting in the political phase. Once we start getting into the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, there may be some divergence of view, who knows? Um, but at the moment, there's this passionate belief that it's this or it's not this. Yeah, and, and maybe I'm clutching at straws here, but is that passionate glue, if you like, that's going to drive, surely everyone's going to want, both sides are going to want some sort of deal, because if that glue can't achieve a deal, 
it hasn't got any power, it, you know, what's the point? Yes, we're, we're certainly, you know, I think where we're at the moment is, and I mean, the UK uh, basically sort of accepted this right so on, on the first day of the negotiation. The first thing that's going to be dealt with is citizens' rights, you know, the, finan the UK's financial liabilities to the EU, uh, and also the, the question of, of what happens to Ireland. And once uh, progress has been made on those three areas, then there can be some conversation about, well, what happens next, mm -hmm. accepting that what happens next will not be what we have now in absence of there being free movement of people mm -hmm. okay so so there has to be there, there have to there have to be some acceptance that there will be a watering down of that that free movement for mm -hmm. trade and services um, but quite when we get to that point will be very dependent on how willing the UK is to negotiate on some of these topics and sort of to, to sort of Julia's point about uh, citizens rights what, what is actually quite interesting is um, the European Commission actually produced its own paper on citizens' rights uh, in the middle of June. And if you were to compare the UK position with the Commission's position, strangely, there is not a lot of difference between those two documents. The problem is the differences are big issues, European Court of Justice yes, being yeah, one. Yeah. So, so there are still some quite fundamental differences between the two sides. But if there is a willingness to find a way then a way will be found. Mm -hmm. Let's hope so. Yes. So I am going to now kind of bring you all back together, actually, and sort of think, um, asking you in a way to not exactly look through the crystal ball, but, but in terms of, you know, for businesses listening, what's likely to happen next? People talk about likely scenarios. Uh, Neil, I'll start with you. What, what do you see as the, the two or three likely scenarios that maybe business should be contingency planning around? Well, I think Ray touched on the, the shorter term point, which I think is absolutely pivotal. Um, will there be enough progress made mm -hmm. on those three issues that yeah, Ray yeah. talked about that were set out right at the beginning by the Commission, uh, that originally the British government were going to try and not have mass as the agenda, decided that would be the agenda. If significant progress is made on those issues by uh, October, November, December this year, then that clearly opens up the opportunity to then start talking about what a new partnership, new arrangement might look like in broad terms. I think the, it would be too tight to get all of that detail done, mm -hmm. but I think getting a sense of what it, uh, the direction of travel, what the broad outlines of that arrangement might be, and does one need any transition around that? You can see those sort of things, particularly as transition be looked at towards the end. Uh, but I think we know a lot by the autumn towards the end of the year mm -hmm. about have we made progress on those three issues that superficially look straightforward, but actually have a lot of complexity and give rise to the points that Julia and Ray have made about the detail and getting into the detail to make enough progress to say, look, we have made enough progress. We haven't agreed yet, but we've made enough progress. Let's move on talking to about a mm -hmm. trade deal. So. So businesses, and we all know that by uh, autumn, Christmas of this year. And the pivotal thing for Europe, I think, will be that inevitably those decisions will be looked at after the German election, which is at the end of mm -hmm. September. Mm -hmm. So German election, German government then takes a, a little bit of time, regardless of the outcome, to, to form because they go through a period of negotiating policy by policy. Once that is in place, then I think we will see reasonably quickly a, a, a judgment 
based on a recommendation from Barnier about has significant progress been made in those three critical mm -hmm. issues. If the answer to that is yes, then I think we can have some uh, a degree of optimism that we can move forward to get enough landed by the end of the period and therefore something for both the European Parliament to vote on, not straightforward, and the British Parliament to vote on, not straightforward either. There are, there are at least two things going on there. One is actually you've given a very helpful steer as, in terms of, again, businesses looking at when we'll get more data, autumn time after general elections, assessing progress, we should get a bit more of yes. a sense. Yes. But, but even in terms of what we do now, it's really, I suppose the million dollar question is, is there likely to be a transition phase or isn't there? Well, it's interesting that uh, on this very day, uh, the business groups meeting in uh, Chevening with uh, David Davis and uh, the business secretary and others uh, seemingly have made transition as the big point, And one can utterly understand that from a business point of view and agree with that from a business point of view. But just to be clear, the transition bit will be decided towards the end of the negotiation when there is a judgment about how far has one got in the negotiations and is there a need to have a bridging point between the, the outcome and the future. And of course you would have to have a sense in that. What does the British government want the future to look like and is there enough of an agreement to have a small enough timeline in order to have a sensible transition. Mm -hmm. And it's worth just reflecting, the uh, business groups today were talking about a, a reasonably lengthy transition. The Treasury have talked about three or four years. Yeah, yeah. Crucially, the European Parliament in their document, which they voted for um, a few months ago, said three years maximum. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a point to just keep in our minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray, anything else that you want to add to that? Well, well no, I, I mean, I completely agree with everything that Neil said. I, I, I mean, on the transitional point, you know, I, I, think, um, you know, I think if we take a view that just by saying, well, let's have a transitional period, we'll get a transitional period, yeah. and that Europe will agree to that, I, I think completely misunderstands where Europe is. Um, Europe will only want to consider a transitional period even after we get past initial, you know, that the, the goodwill has been built up to a degree through the early negotiation, is if there, if there is some understanding of where we ultimately want to get to. And to Neil's point, Neil's point about three years, and it goes back to my earlier point, which is, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, Europe is going to lose the whole of 2019 because you're going through European elections, then you're, you're, you're coming to the end of, of, of the current commission with the appointment of new commissioners. So, so the, the, new, the whole new team will not be in place until the 1st of January 2020. So, so that's your sort of start point to really get into the, the meat of what transitional arrangements will get you to. So when, when, when European Parliament say three years, in reality what we're talking about is most probably two years. That's really interesting. So, you know, the point you're making is that, that as, well, as well as political reasons why things might happen at a particular time, there are actually some structural reasons which we just can't get around, Absolutely. which are going to box us into certain time periods. And of course, you know, you, you then overlap with that, and, you know, others can mostly understand this better than, than me, but uh, you then overlap that to the UK domestic, political domestic situation as well, as to what's actually going on politically here over that time frame as well. Yeah, so interesting. So, so, so. Um, so we're not probably going to get clarity on transition period, what it's going to mean for a while. Um, what about a scenario sometimes pasted that we will, we will still agree, um, but we'll only have actually agreed the, the exit 
And then there's a sort of hiatus period, and then we have to re-agree and renegotiate a kind of WTO position going forward. Sometimes we call that the kind of rocky landing scenario. Um, Neil, do you have any thoughts about whether anyone really wants that? You know, surely there's a lots of goodwill to kind of try well, and keep working well, together. Well, I don't, I don't think anybody particularly would want any of those sort of outcomes. I know people, for good domestic reasons, have talked about, you know, uh, no deal is better than a bad deal and those sorts of things. You can understand those sorts of things in the domestic political scene. I don't think there is, um, you know, I think people do want to do a deal. And I think one of the reasons why one knows that is actually Europe, including the United Kingdom, has been rather successful over more than 40 years of people with different positions, different views, different histories, actually agreeing things. and. Uh, often it's been right through the night, often it's been leaders round the table making compromises to agree things, but Europe does have a history of doing that, of which the United Kingdom has been a significant part. So I think we should just remember that architecture mm -hmm. uh, still exists, people yeah. do know each other, uh, there's a lot of very good relationships there, uh, but I think for that to happen, this period of a few months of the talk starting with those three big issues will send a very clear signal about can people make the necessary compromises, which is largely but not, uh, not exclusively on the British side, in order to sort of move to that phase. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so I think uh, autumn end of the year will be a very good moment for businesses to assess progress but in waiting for that period, I think businesses should recognise the clock is ticking mm. and therefore planning, whether it's on people, whether it's on your business model, whether it's on, uh, on, on how you might deal with um, you know, a bumpier ending. I think all of those things need to be done, uh, but there's some milestones that will help you uh, have a sense of uh, do you have to continue to still prepare for the worst case or will it be slightly better than yeah. that? So it's very, very much still businesses have to be able to deal with running several yes. scenarios in, in parallel. Yes. Uh, we all hope that it'll be a smooth transition, but you have to have contingency planning yes. what if Absolutely. the worst case comes out. Julia, anything you want to add? Because you know, you're in Brussels a lot, you're, you know, you're on mm. Sadiq Khan's committee. Anything mm. else that you're hearing that business mm. is doing that would be good to share? Well, I think that one thing that has come out to me in, in, um, in the last week. Um, the mayor had a very useful visa summit and there was lots of different sectors represented. Um, that there's quite a lot of differing views about what a new immigration policy should look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, different sectors seem to want different things. So I think that all of that thinking is very, very helpful and it would be good to, for more sectors to get their thinking out now. And as I said before, not just about immigration, but about the industrial strategy. Um, so that you know, as much as possible, business could come to more of a common view about what it is they want, yes. because it would be much easier, I think, if, if there was you know a common view. So, for example, um, some businesses are very keen on the idea of a regional visa policy, um, and and some businesses think this would be you know really really helpful, and some commentators think that too. Others think that uh, it would be better not to have a regional any regional variations. Um, some uh, would like quotas for uh, low-skill sectors and they would like the Migration Advisory Committee to judge on those quotas. Some don't want that at all. 
Um, so I think it, you know, it is important that business gives this serious thought and, and doesn't just react to the consultation paper that will be coming out from the Migration Advisory Committee shortly after the, after the white paper, but starts to think themselves, what is it that we need for the future of our business? as I say, not just in terms of immigration, but in terms of the industrial strategy too. So there's a real opportunity for business to be innovative and yes. proactive, and perhaps using this time yes. um, whilst there's still a lot of uncertainty to try and come together, maybe work with CBI or other trade bodies who are being invited to these forums. Yes, yeah. or work you know, with ourselves at PwC, because yeah. you know, we're doing a lot of thinking in this area. And in fact, yesterday, um, you know, we did the City UK report, which has been, uh, you know, very powerfully received. And as part of that, um, you know, my immigration team, um, led by Satman Patel, um, came up with a digital visa, um, which was a, a very new and innovative idea to help fintech. So um, I think there are, you know, lots of uh, different thought leaderships around uh, visas that uh, companies could um, contribute to. Yeah, excellent, really good idea of both innovation and also kind of long-term thinking. Let's yes. Not, let's just not think about the two years. This is here forever, let's, let's plan for that. We're getting a lot of questions in, so I think I'm gonna move to the questions. Um, so let's start with the first one. Um, Given the UK's comparative advantage in new and emerging sectors, so FinTech might be an example there, like machine learning, robotics, how can companies take advantage of this and minimise risk of Brexit opportunities? Um, Neil, do you want to have a uh, stab at trying to answer that one first? Well, I think that the, the important thing for businesses, and businesses you know, every year look at their business strategy and their business model, I think we, whilst one is doing that, one should absolutely be focusing on uh, the impact of Brexit mm -hmm. and thinking through that it does mean a change for how your business has operated, particularly if you're selling things uh, globally, if you've got integrated supply chains uh, across Europe, there will be things that will make those, uh, those situations more difficult, more challenging, more costly. Because ultimately, and Michel Barnier consistently makes the point, and Ray has reiterated it, that um, if we're, as we're not going to have a sort of frictionless trade because we will be moving outside the membership of the EU. And therefore, that will mean uh, various things around uh, check-in and customs and various barriers, not just potentially tariffs, but non-tariff barriers. So businesses will need to think that through and how will they make their model consistently work going forward. And I think that's the thing that people should really seriously look at. There are opportunities, and there clearly are, of trade outside the EU. Do you know what most, that's something one can, come, one can focus on today. Mm. And, I, and I think that's, that's, that's a really good point. So, so I think there is a point about uh, one, Brexit is going to happen, so you sort of have to weave it into all decisions yes. rather than having a sort of separate, right now we've done our business yeah. planning, let's focus on Brexit. Yes. Um, but there's a second point is let's play to our strengths. That's got to be the right thing yes. to do. That's got to be yes. the right thing to do. Many thanks to our panellists for their perspectives and to you for listening. Please subscribe to receive further episodes. If you'd like to watch our recent webcast or find out more information on how we can help you navigate Brexit, please go to www.pwc.co.uk forward slash Brexit. Thank you. Thank you.